Welcome to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who are veterans and are also artists. And one point of clarification that I haven't made in the past that I want to make this week, when we talk about veterans um, on this show and in this context, what we mean is, of course, military veterans, but we also mean veterans of law enforcement, fire, EMS, or intelligence services, as well as DOD contractors, Department of Defense contractors, and their immediate family members. Um, So we group all of them together for our intents and purposes as veterans, since all of them are involved in the life or death work or the support of life and death work, and, and all of them are taking that emotional roller coaster together. So we're trying to honor all those experiences. So that's what we mean when we talk about veterans here on this show. Uh, This show, of course, is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was William Buck Bolliard. So the best way, I think, to introduce Buck to you all is to talk about him in in contradistinction with our previous guest, S.P. Burke. So S.P. Burke, if you guys remember on the show, uh, I described as a very partisan poet, meaning that he, and, and what I meant when I said that was he is partisan about poetry. He truly believes poetry is the highest form of written communication. He loves it. He sees himself as a poet first and a writer second. Um, he was incredibly partisan about poetry. Buck is not. Buck is about 180 degrees different. Buck is, I think I would describe him as a self-loathing poet. Uh, I loved that he resents that poetry still comes out of him. It, it seems to like he, he resented that it's like still a distraction from the multiple novels, multiple short stories, multiple articles that he is working on at any given time. So it seemed like, yeah, it was all just a, a burden that he wished he could be free of now, but it's still coming out of him. And it makes sense because I think when you hear my conversation with Buck, you'll see he, he has got this kind of seething, overflowing reservoir of life experiences to draw on. It's like this endless supply of subject matter. And um, that has culminated so far in one book that's out and has been published. Uh, it's his book of poetry called Sober Man's Thoughts, and um, there's that. But offline, uh, and we talked about online as well. We talked about while we were recording, but also offline, he got into some of the details on the books that he has um, kind of in the docket that are completed or just waiting one final gut check from him. And I, I won't give any spoilers except to say it is an incredibly diverse, interesting uh set of books that I think our people are really going to take to. And that was really my biggest takeaway talking with Buck. I, I really just get the sense that he's a writer to watch, not just for what he's put out so far in sober man's thoughts, but how much more he has in the offing. And uh, I think he's going to be a name that we are going to talk about a lot. It's one of the, um, you know, cutting edge writers coming out of the GWAT generation. And um, it just so many, so many avenues that we went down with him. Uh, his early years in juvie, his combat deployments, his his reticence to cash in on his veteran status, 
Uh, even though the personal stuff, just him being alone on a new year's in Guatemala with a missing toenail, you know, there, there's just a lot to mine with him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of vet rep. And this is the savage wonder of William Bulliard. What's up, man? You got a nice little bar set up there. I like it. I like the, uh, is, is that traditional for just any kind of Zoom meeting? You just make sure that you're in front of something that has alcohol to get you through the meeting? <laughs> I think it just kind of worked out conveniently. Uh, <laughs> I've actually usually do it like on, this is kind of like my writing area anyways. So it's kind of like my desk. Uh, it's just my kitchen countertop right now. Uh, but my writing desk kind of like changes wherever I'm at. And it used to be like my van and then it was like hotel rooms, you know, just random stuff. I have like a full on desk, but I just never use it. It's yeah. just cluttered with bullshit. So, yeah. So it's, um, first off, where are you right now? Are you in Texas? Uh, I'm in Savannah, Georgia right now. Savannah, Georgia. Okay. All right. So, so I got to do full disclosure on this. First off, actually, dude, we got back up. What do I even call you? Are you, do you go by William, Will, Bill? What do you like? I usually go by Buck. Most people call me Buck. You call me William if you want. <laughs> oh, Buck. Well, that makes more sense. All right. Yeah. Um, so I got to do full disclosure. I ordered your book on Kindle. It came and the pages were blank. So I was like, all right, no worries. Tried to troubleshoot. Couldn't, couldn't get that right. It's like, no worries. I'll order the hard copy. Bitching. Then the fucking supply chain hits. So it doesn't get there in time. So I so so what I ended up doing as a substitute was I totally stalked the shit out of your Instagram and just like cruised through the pictures and looked at all this stuff, read all the reviews of, of your stuff, which are glowing for anybody that hasn't checked your stuff out. You know, I think you have like 26 reviews and you're like rated above like 4.6 or something on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so that's freaking awesome. But um, I want to start off just kind of level setting about you as a writer from what I gleaned, it looks to me like if somebody said, Hey, just describe buck to me, just, you know, bumper sticker style, I would say Kerouac meets Bukowski on a global scale. How do you feel about that? I, uh, it's not bad. Actually, I get compared to Kerouac a lot. Um, and I usually like, I usually distaste when uh, people compare other writers to other writers because it's like our own unique style. Yes. yes. But then if you're going to be described by a, like essentially to another writer, Kerouac's not a bad start. And I actually uh, I, I got that idea for my poetry book uh, from a Bukowski book called On Drinking. It was like a collection of poems, like all his like big, like wild crazy poems like he compiled that well somebody else compiled at the end of his death and i found it at like barnes and noble it was like years ago and i found it and i was like i was just getting into poetry at the time and i found the book and looked pretty cool and i was like all right you know i'll take a look at it and i was like flipping through the pages some of them were like i'm hit and miss on bukowski like sometimes i really like his stuff and then sometimes i absolutely hate it it's like it's too grungy it's too gross I, I can't get into it but then like you'll read these like hidden gems and that's that's what Bukowski is you just gotta dig through it till you find the gems it would because you're you're walking in the gutter of this dude's life so like yeah. sometimes you could be like oh shit look what dropped in the gutter and other times you could be like dude I'm in the fucking gutter like 
enough. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's totally understandable. So let's um I, I say this many weeks and I rarely do it. So let me try to actually do this and stick to some sort of chronology um and give people the full origin story um properly told. Okay. So where does your origin story start? When you enlisted uh high school, what where would you place man you have become uh i think it kind of started uh i mean i'm originally from west virginia so i'm a great appalachian american um i grew up uh i was raised by my grandparents essentially so that's why i have a taste for really old shit uh yeah so my grand my uh i had a really rough relationship with my mother and my father growing up uh because they kind of they were young they were 16 17 when i was born and like that's no way to be ready to raise a kid so they kind of bounced uh but my dad and me are like super cool now. We're like best friends. But essentially, I was raised by my grandmother, who's really into books and literature and like classic films. So she got me into all that. She was like the super Italian hippie. Uh, I grew up working like my first job was like working on a cattle ranch, like in like West Virginia. And I split wood and like just did off taste jobs. And I worked at a restaurant. I hated that. I was in this punk rock band. I did symphony orchestra for a little bit. I've just essentially tried my hand in everything. And then I just, just straight out of options in life. I was in and out of juvie and I was like, fuck it. I'll join the army. You know? So when you were in the punk rock band, when you were doing the music thing, when you were working, when you were splitting wood, is this high school? Is this before high school? Uh, yeah, that was high school for me. Okay. And you started working at what? 11, 12, 13, when were you working? Probably around 13, I started working at the ranch, okay. tending to horses and stuff. And, and was this paid work or was this like helping out people? It was paid work. It was about below minimum wage, but you know, you don't need a lot of money when you're that young. Right. You know, I had an old beat up truck. I drove around like, it was very like country and Appalachian my whole growing up, but I was always gravitated more towards like punk rock and, you know, heavy metal and uh, I could never pick up the guitar no matter how hard I fucking tried. Uh, so I played the drums and then uh, I wrote the music for my band at the time. Wow. We obviously never made it, but you know, it is what it is. Well, yeah. I mean, what was the residual effect of that? Did you find that like you just took the punk attitude and that's what stayed? Did you find that, oh, there's a bit of musicianship that you always want to get back to? Like what's stuck? Well, I think anything? every writer wants to be a musician. I have like yeah. a big running theory that every writer originally wanted to be a musician. He always wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to do that music. And then I've noticed a lot of musicians, they all want to be writers. So I'm like, everybody wants to be somebody else. It's cool. Like it's more poetic to be a writer and like more artistic, but yeah. like music is cool. It's always cool. And I've always like had a big love for music and punk rock and heavy metal, like the lyrics inside of it. It's just like, I was a disgruntled teenage boy, like many other punk right. rock kids. You yeah. Know? So it just kind of fit. Who did you like? Who were your influences? Uh, so I was <laughs> very stereotypical. I was a big Nirvana guy. Okay. Uh, loved Nirvana. I listened to a lot of, uh, Blink-182 back then. Uh, freaking, I don't know. I can always think of my newer bands that I like now when I blank out on it. I had this one Green Day album. I almost burned to the ground because I just played it over and over again. Got you. And then the Sex Pistols, you know, I got really into like old, like older punk rocks. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you're catching me on one of the rare podcasts that I'm not wearing my bad brain sweatshirt. So um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's been amazing how much of a conversation started wearing that sweatshirt is. It's amazing. It's like it's like Fight Club. People come out of the woodwork and they're like, dude, bad brains right on, man. Like, I didn't think anybody <laughs> still knew this. I thought this was an inside joke between me and myself. 
Um, yeah. And you see my Primus shirt too. I, I, yeah, I have to, Primus. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge like 90s, early 90s Bay Area thrash funk. I is uh, yeah, I think I, the best. I love that shit, man. I I and I'll I'll, I'll brag on myself for one second because three days ago I think it was I got a follow from the lead guitarist from John Axtell, who was the lead guitarist of Psycho Funkopus, which if you try to look them up, you will see almost nothing about them. But they were one of those seminal Bay Area thrash funk bands in the early 90s yeah. that put out an album I fucking loved. You can't even get it on iTunes. But he followed yeah. me the other day and I was like, fuck, yeah, I've made it like this. I is it. it. I can die. Oh, I can cash out my chips at this yeah, point. I was like, That's it. And I was like, is, is, any, is everybody going to think I'm just fucking drunk or out of my mind if I start bragging that Johnny Axtell's following me and they could be like, who, who the fuck? Why, Ooh, why yeah. is this important? But um, yeah, it's, it's I, I really do agree that music it's um, I, I think there's something I'm, I'm going to butcher this quote, but there's something about music, you know, being the soundtrack of your life that I think. Mm-hmm when you talk about writers wanting to be musicians that like, dude, it's a lonely business to write. So the idea that, Hey, there's this fucking badass soundtrack though, that goes on when I'm doing this to get me in the right headspace, even if I'm not listening to it, it's my soundtrack for my mind. I think there's something to that, that writers do gravitate to. You get the, yeah. you, you, there's the sense of community, the sense of like, Hey, there's other people that are going to appreciate this because you know, the uh, music just can't happen in a vacuum. Um, unlike exactly. writing, you know, um, I think there is something to that. And it's funny. I was talking about this with uh, the managing director of Vet Rep Lilla um, a while ago because she was talking about how um, artists, you know, if they're good at art, they could be good at anything. And I was like, I don't know, man. I mean, I come from a family of actors. Um, I love them to death. Not always the most practical, well-rounded, grounded people. And she was like, yeah, but look at all these musicians that did this. I was like, well, music's a different animal. Because it is music, like you can, you can act like you and I right now could just decide to start acting, but you and I could not just decide, Hey, let's start playing music right now. Like that. Yeah. You gotta learn. You gotta pick up the instruments. And I think there's the drums. <laughs> well, and, and I wonder, that's what I was going to say. So did you study the drums? Were, did you consider yourself a student or were you like, dude, I'm going to smack around, watch some YouTube and I'll figure it out on the fly. So I joined the symphony orchestra in my middle school because they were like, yo, if you join the symphony orchestra, we'll give you a free instrument and we'll teach you how to play. Oh, so I was like, wow. that seems like a pretty good fucking deal to me. I was like, I want to learn how to play music. So I like tried out for it. I couldn't do, I wanted to do saxophone at first. Cause I was like into jazz at like fucking 13 years old as a weird motherfucker. I was <laughs> yeah, that's fucking awesome though. So, but I couldn't play any woodwind or any brass. So they're like, Hey, try the percussion. So they put me on the snare drum and I took to it pretty easily. I studied up on the notes, studied up on the beats. Then they put me on the timpani and I played the bass. And then naturally I got a drum set from working, um, saved up my money, bought a drum set, met a couple other dudes that I would like just hang out and smoke pot with. And they were like, Hey, we should start a band. I was like, yeah, man. Drinking. And then we started a band in the garage. Band's Famous name was words. Pipeline. Pipeline, right on. Yeah. Okay, I dig it. What um, what happened with Juvie? How'd that start? Well, uh, so my mom. Or the record sealed. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I, I think it, if you're a writer and you've been to jail, it kind of adds street cred to you. It, you know? it does. It does. <laughs> yeah, this is where the Bukowski so, description came in. Yeah, in my mind, I was like, yeah. oh yeah. So my mom wasn't around like a whole lot uh, growing up because she had me like so young. Came back into my life like when she was like nine. 
got started another family. Uh, this other stuff happened and then she got divorced. And then she was like 20. I mean, she was like 29, tw- like 30 at this age. So like she was young and I'm like 16. So, wow. Wow. so she was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go like party and enjoy my life. I was like, yo, we're, I understand it more now, but like as a 16 right. year old kid, like I didn't understand that shit. So I was like, all right, well, I'm free to do whatever the fuck I want now. So I started getting like local fucking just causing hell, like busting up mailboxes, you know, stealing cigarettes out of cars, like shit like that. And uh, yeah, you know, it eventually just caught up to me and I got uh, I got arrested for possession with intent to sell because uh, I was selling pot on the side. Uh, got busted for that. Um, and then I got busted like stealing cigarettes out of cars. So I did like 30 days in juvie, was on probation, went back to juvie. Uh, and then like right around, I got off probation when I turned 18 and then I joined the army. So now with the benefit of hindsight, what was the imprint that juvie made on you? Do you still see it? Do you think it's still there? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's something I've thought about writing a lot. So I've always been a huge reader. So I read the book, uh, monster by Walter D. Meyer. When I was actually in juvie, really great book. Um, and I was a big fan of his work anyways, cause I read fallen angels and, uh, it talks mm. about, you know, a young kid, like being charged for murder, a wrong for that crime that he didn't commit. And it's something I've thought that I might go revisit like later down the road. Cause I still like remember everything from juvie, you know, cause like, wow. it's a pretty impressionable event. Like when you're sure. that young, sure. And I was a piece of shit inmate. Like I'd like pop the sprinkler system, get in fights, mm. like just to prove that I was tough, you know? Sure. And, uh, you know, that's something I've thought about might do it one day, might not. I have like a thousand other stories. I want to write before that, but it's probably going to come out eventually. So the army was the army at that point, the only option that you could really see, or was it like a conscious choice of like, no, fuck. Yeah. This is going to scratch some itches that I got. It was more of the, uh, the latter. I had read Walter Dean Myers fallen angel. Then I started reading some other like military books and it seemed like a really cool adventure. And I was reading some Hemingway at the time. And I was like, man, like, I feel like, I never had really wanted to be a writer. I just liked books and I always had thought it I had wrote, I was writing short stories at that time. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe I could like go live some life, figure it all out. Uh, I met a girl at the time and then I was like, you know what? I'll just join the army. Maybe I'll go live a normal life. That didn't work out. So I kept just, uh, just volunteering for deployments and doing the army stuff. And then uh, it looked like a really fun adventure for me. And it Got was you. What year was this that you joined? 2012. Okay. So the wars are going hot and heavy. So you knew exactly what you're getting into. Oh yeah. Um, I grew up, I mean, I grew up with the GWA as like my background memory. Right. Right. So then what did you, uh, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you know what your MOS want, what you wanted your MOS to be? Like how much forethought did you give it? I wanted just to, I want to be a paratrooper. That was it. Okay. And that was based on Walter Dean Myers or what was that based on? Uh, I thought jumping out of planes seemed really cool. Um, It turned out to not be that cool, but uh, the military takes all the fun out of parachuting. Um, But yeah, I wanted to be an infantryman because I like Walter Dean Myers book is about essentially about his brother who was drafted in the Vietnam war. And like the things they talked about, like it just seemed like really fun, you know, oddly enough in the, in like the storytelling and everything. I was like, you know what? And like, Every book, every big classic war literature book is about infantrymen, you know? So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do that. Yeah, got you. And so uh, you went in, and where was your first duty station? So I was actually a – I was a reservist uh, at the time because I couldn't join active duty because I had priors. Oh, got you. Yeah, so active duty wouldn't take me, but my reserve unit 
I was in the National Guard at the time. Okay. They were like, hey, we're going to like we're going to like Canada for a unit exchange program. And I, so I spent like three months with the Canadian army. <laughs> and they're like, Hey, you're deploying. You want to go? And I was like, yeah, I could do that. So it kind of just hopped on and off. Like I was like active, like out of my, like essentially like 10 years of like in the guard, I did eight of it active duty. That's awesome. I, I was a guard bum also. Um, and I mean, it's a, I, yeah, I was, guard, bum life. Guard, guard bum life is like, uh, it's interesting. Cause I, I, I didn't have insight into what it was like as a, uh, as an infantryman, but in a soft unit, it was, I, I thought it was really easy to guard bum and just about everybody in the unit was from out of state. Everybody was yeah. making their living, just deploying all the time. Um, I thought it was great. I thought it, I think it's the biggest loophole that nobody takes advantage of in the military. They get stuck doing garrison shit on active duty and I'm like, fuck that, dude. It, send me out to war or just have me at home chilling. Like, I don't. Yeah, send me like, out some sweet TDY O'Connor. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. A hundred percent. So um, when did you end up deploying uh, like a combat uh, deployment? So my last combat deployment actually is in 2019. Okay. To Afghanistan? Very, yeah. God, you and I were probably there at the same time. Okay. Right on. Okay. Yeah. I was up in uh, the north. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah I was. I was bouncing all over the country, but I didn't go up to, to, uh, Mez. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, Mez, Mez life, <laughs> Mez life, man, dude, that's crazy. Um, so, uh, talk about just the deployments in general and what they meant to you. Did you feel like, all right, I'm a fucking soldier now. I'm, I like now the Walter D. Meyer stuff is in the rear view. Now I've lived it. Now I've yeah. earned my stripes. Um, and now the music's played out. Or did you feel like I'm directly on purpose? This is everything I wanted it to be. I'm hungry for more. How did that stuff sit with you? Uh, I guess that's kind of a, that's probably the hardest part of it all. Cause I guard bumming is a hard life because you're hat one foot in and one foot out. And I saw a lot of my friends and my peers uh, going out and like living life and like having a normal lifestyle. And uh, I was like, man, I still got to make a paycheck. Like I, was still want at that time I had started to become to want to be a writer. Mm. I had gotten uh, some small features and things with poetry and it was working out all right. And then I would do like six months on active duty and then I'd take six months off and not work anymore. And that's when I would like travel around and do stuff. Got you. Yeah. So yeah, I just kind of was like, I started to make an exit plan. I was like, well, probably going to do this deployment real quick. You know, I'll figure it out what I'm going to do after that. Uh, and then I started like really hammering down on my book. Like I remember like I was right. I'd like be going out on missions and then like I'd be coming back and like spending the whole daytime in my room, like writing, like figuring out poetry stuff, you know? Yeah. So did you ever stop writing? Was there ever a time that you were like, dude, I'm too in it right now. I really can't write. I'm too busy or I'm too stressed. Even if you're stateside or on TDY, but you're going, hey, I'm thinking about money or I'm trying to live in the moment. I, I can't sit and reflect too much. Or was it a consistent like muscle for you that you just kept working out the writing every day? I've uh, tried to stop writing probably at least a hundred times. Sure. Cause like, it's not a lot of, re- there's not a lot of reward in it. Like you're, yeah. you're constantly, you overthink everything. You have to like create characters. You have to build dialogue you have to get in the mindset of the character. And like, it's kind of crazy. Like you have conversations with yourself. Sometimes you just want to enjoy a night out, but then like some line comes to your head, you can't get it out. So you're like writing down on like napkins and like coasters and shit. Like it's kind of, it's fucking, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's right. I mean, you're yoked in. I mean, once you decide to yeah. make that choice, like it's a burden, like you got to think about it and you got to um, stay married to it all the time and, and keep, yeah. you know, keep it alive. Did it's the you- thing I love the most. Like I love writing more than anything in the world. Like I truly am completely 100% passionate about it. And I have like so many stories and so many ideas out, but like my biggest problem is, is that I don't have enough time to get it all out at once. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Are you working now or are you able to devote like sizable chunks of your day though, to writing and to try to mine all the shit you want to get out? So it's hit and miss. I have day, I have a uh, like weeks at a time where I'm like really working heavy. Uh, Cause I'm still kind of like have a role in the DOD some sense. So I have to like still teach. I'm mm-hmm. more of an instructor side right now. So I gotcha. teach at a schoolhouse somewhere. Gotcha. Um, so like some weeks it's hard, but then like I have to spend my weekends writing, you know, I'm working on a novel right now. Um, so that's going to be my big devotion. I'm trying to finish it in the next six months, but you know, life is life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it's forcing a- writing. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. You got to take what the defense gives you. Did you find that poetry kind of came easier as a writing form? Like it was the one that you could kind of more, kind of more quickly digest. It's like, yeah, I got the bandwidth for a poem. Not sure I have the bandwidth for a full short story even, but poems can kind of, you can kind of hit those on the fly a little bit. Is that yeah, what you found? So I have a theory that like it made it, there's no like scientific evidence based behind this, but my big theory is that like every writer starts with poetry because it's something it's telling a story in a couple lines. If you're kind of good at it, you know, and like at first when you start doing it, you start to rhyme and you're like, okay, I got my rhymes down. And then like, you'll start getting your own style and your own flow of things. And you'll get to the point where you're not really even rhyming. And then you start building narratives you start building paragraphs and you start building, uh, like article style writing. And then you'll start building short stories. And then from the short stories, you have chapters. And there's those chapters, you have a book. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as somebody that is still very much a soldier and kind of a split personality? Like I got my soldier side and I got my writer side, or do you see it like, Hey, I'm a writer. And eventually all this other scaffolding is going to fall off and I'm just going to be standing alone as a writer. And that's kind of the, the ultimate of all my life experiences. It all gets funneled into the art. So I, I honestly see myself uh, just as a writer and I've always kind of see myself as more of like a traveler type guy. Like I'm just a dude who loves to travel and experience life and it's all fullest and everything else is just gravy. Writing is just a really great way to make a living doing that. How much have you leveraged the army for travel? Do you travel a lot on the army's dime and are you able to, is that like the primary way that you're able to travel? Uh, so I've actually only been recently fortunate enough to get uh, some pretty good trips from the DOD. Uh, Other than that, no, it's pretty much self-funded. I, but I've done like, when I was a young, uh, I was like about to be promoted to uh, E6. I was like E5. I went on leave to Cuba and uh, yeah, I saw that. I was going to ask. All right. Yeah. yeah, My chain of command was like, what the fuck? (laughs) I was like, come on, it's really cool. And they're like, I don't know if you can do that. And I was like, I'm doing it. Like, I've always been, my job was just being in the army, essentially. I've always been the same guy I've always been. So now when you take stock of yourself, where are you weak as a writer? What are you not scratching? What things, 
what are you, I mean, obviously you're trying to work on this book, but are you, is it, is it a matter that only time is holding you back or is there something where you're like, yeah, I'm doing the best I can right now, but I know I've got to grow more as a, as a writer in certain ways. Have you been able to identify that or is that what you feel or not yeah. so much? So for, for me personally, uh, my biggest thing is I'm really bad at finishing projects because <laughs> I'll start working on something and I'm super invested in it. And I'm working really hard, but then I get an idea for something else. And I'm like, fuck, okay, pause, go back, write this down, come back to it later. So I'm constantly bouncing between multiple different projects because I feel like you got to light the candle when the fuel's burning, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to, my biggest regret is like, I've had like these really awesome lines and I didn't write them down and I forget about it. And I'm like, fuck. And like, so I have to get it all out whenever I can. So it's kind of, I work on, because I'm working on some like articles and stuff like that. I'm trying to become more of like a, a journalist in a sense. Um, so, so doing I, nonfiction, kind of nonfiction, he thinks. Well, yeah, nonfiction, essentially like travel journalism, because that's like my big passion is traveling. I love it. And I love like just telling a story through an article and like it's more receptive. People like to read that stuff. You know, they get I get to be more funny and less serious about things because like my my novel style writing is very matter of fact. There's not a lot of comedy in that stuff. But with my articles, I can just tell it how it is, tell the crazy stuff, make people laugh, uh, which I think is you know, super great. And then my poetry is usually pretty, pretty dark, you know, so can't really get a lot of good things out of that. Right. When you, when you travel, do you find that you're courting experiences like it, like, and let me give you an example. Let's say you're out and you're having dinner at some place in, and because I've cruised your Instagram, let's say Switzerland and uh, you go, all right, I could now go back to wherever I'm staying or I could wander the streets and go down these dark alleys and, hey, look, there's, you know, a gambling place or a strip club or something like that. Do you court the stuff? Do you look for the drama while you're traveling? Because you're like, hey, I'm here to experience and to kind of suss it out. Or do you let your imagination go wild and just go, hey, I just feel stimulated just by being in the country? Like, what's how does that kind of internalize for you? So I never really planned my travels ever. I'm just like, all right, because I'll give you a recent example. I uh, I went to Prague uh, this year. I was in Germany for like three weeks and I had like a weekend off. Uh, so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll go see Prague. I've heard people talk about it forever. My buddy, my buddy Patrick has told me about Prague so many times and he was like his favorite town in Europe. So I was like, okay, I'll go check it out. So I rent a car, drive to Prague. Uh, get to see, I love driving through foreign countries because you get to see so much of the countryside and stuff. Uh, I saw like some random like Czech Republic, like logo, like giant in this giant cornfield had a UFO on it. So I stopped inside, took a picture of it, thought that was cool. And I was like, oh, I'm going to turn off and like see what the regular villages are like or whatever. Drove through that, you know, it was pretty cool. Got lost, finally made it to Prague, uh, stayed at a hotel next to the big, like famous clock tower, you know, uh, in the downtown square. I didn't really plan my room. I just booked whatever was cheap on hot wire, but it turned out to be great. So I was like, all right, cool. Uh, had a couple drinks at the bar, talked to some of the locals like, Hey, like, what's a good, what's like your big thing here? Like, what do you guys like to do? And they're like, Oh, you get check out the jazz club. I was like, all right, now we're fucking talking. So where did the jazz clubs, uh, a friend of mine, she told me that they had this cool Hemingway bar. So I spent all night at the jazz club listening huh. and like BB King had played there back in the day. And like, wow. Apparently Prague is a huge jazz scene and the 
news like down this like stairway in the fucking dungeons like super old like super cool they serve like quesadillas and gin and i'm like hell yeah and then uh i go to the hemingway bar it's terrible it's just a fucking tourist trap you have to have like a reservation to get in but it's like this real dive bar type thing i'm like i'm not taking no reservation for a fucking dive bar leave there i go to this british pub they're doing like punk rock karaoke we end up drinking all night with these random Canadians, meet some Israelis. We go to like this big nightclub, spend all night there. And then I get home at like 6 a.m. How much did that fuel? Did, like, did you feel like your tank was full inspirationally after that? Mm-hmm. Were you like, dude, I can write about this for like three months. Like there's so much shit to mine in yeah. that one night. I tell people all the time, like you have to write about what you know, like people can see through the bullshit and writing a mile away. Like maybe not every reader, but someone who's experienced it. You can't describe to me the streets of Prague and the daily traffic and like what food is that here or, you know, what they sell, what it looks at midnight when everybody's coming home and like, or when people are going out and you have that weird lull in traffic at 9 PM between the people going home from work and the people going out to the bars. And you don't know these like small little details. And like someone like me, who's been to these places is going to see immediately through it. You know? It definitely, if you're writing naturalistically, I would say, and, and for most writing forms that people do, yeah, the, the the credibility has to be there. I think certainly for, for some forms, you can be ridiculously fantastical, but it has to be, it has to fit the medium. Um, yeah. and, and, and people's expectations have to be, got it, you're talking out of your ass, because that's kind of the point of whatever it is you're writing about. Um, yeah, that makes total sense. What's the flash to bang on your experiences and when you start writing about them? Is it something where you're literally like from that day forward, it's kind of in your head and you're just unpacking everything from that night? Or is it something where eh, in a couple months that's going to resonate with me and I'll, I'll start diving into it then? So I actually carry, and it's conveniently right here, this little notebook around me everywhere I go. And through it, I write down just random stuff that I feel at the moment. Keep it in my back pocket next to my cell phone and I just... Write it down. Like, uh, what's the recent thing I wrote? Uh, grocery list. That's a good one. I wrote this. Uh, I don't remember where I wrote it, but I just write random stuff. Actually, I did write this in Prague, conveniently. Huh. Uh, she was poems, but this woman was a novel. She listened to jazz while she did her makeup. I love that. I slipped out and smoked cigarettes, looking out into the window of the hotel, listening to her sing music softly from the bathroom. Yep. And that's that where it down. starts. I, yeah. Because I, when I know a moment's unique, I feel it. And I know I have to record it down at that moment to get every emotion down. And then usually I'll go back to work on whatever project I'm working on. And then I'll come across, I put my notes in like little categories. And then whenever I start writing something about it, that's when I start pulling all the notes out. And I build the dialogue with my notes from like these unique moments, you know? Yeah. So let's talk a little craft on that. I mean, organizationally, do you cork board? Do you like put it up there so you can like, like I remember um, uh, years and years and years ago and many of my former lives uh, ago, uh, I was friends with Dimitri Martin, the comic and writer, and he um, yeah. he was just starting to, to become big. And he, he had, um, you know, he had trained as a lawyer and then he was, had made a very sharp gear shift into becoming an artist. And in his apartment, he had obviously four walls. And on one wall was the novel he was working on. The other wall was a sitcom on the other wall was a screenplay. Like on the other wall was like random thoughts and jokes and comedy stuff. And he literally had cork boards on each wall that he was just like 
tagging ideas and just spending all day in kind of like that madhouse. Um, and I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say this, but because um, I think he told me that in confidence. But uh, but I remember when I, he did that, I was like, God damn, that's fucking awesome, man. That's like you're literally in mission control, just looking at your all your projects. Is and I could see that working for me visually. But is that how you work, um, or are you working kind of on the fly and out of a notebook, and you just have different pages dedicated to it? How do you uh, actually I organize? Have files. Uh, so I have legal pads. Legal pads are my big thing. Okay. Uh, I have legal pads I dedicate to because I have like four four books planned right now. Wow. Uh, so I have the out. I create the outlines, build the characters, make sure the character names sound good, and then I'll usually what I'll do is I'll write the first chapter and I'll write the last chapter. So I have the story from beginning to end right there, and I have the outlines for each chapter I want to write. And then I fill in the stories with the dialogue and I'll have to go back and I'll track things. And I keep my legal pad by the side to keep track of what I'm going to do and who's doing what this subplot, this thing. It's kind of madness. And, but like my poetry books are completely different. When I was writing my first, like when I was writing Superman's thoughts, I would keep dry erase markers in my shower. And I'm really? writing on shower walls. <laughs> I was living above this bar in Macon, Georgia, uh, called the Hummingbird. It was like this punk rock darts bar, and they had live music like almost every night. Like we're talking five dollar liquor pitchers. It was like their go to on Wednesdays. Wow. And I'd be there every night. I'd be writing at the bar top. Like I wouldn't go. I never went to coffee. I never go to coffee shops to write. I go to bars, like midday bar. Like you're always the only one there. You have local status. You get free drinks. You write there all day, you go home, get a bite to eat, come right back, get some more inspiration. So like that was what my poetry book was fueled by. So let me ask about that. So what do you what do you find turns you on? Is it the place? Is it the people? What what is it that gets your motor revving when you're there? All of the above. Okay. Okay. So and it just depends which day, what's happening, what the vibe is. I don't know. Yeah. It's uh I've been to some places. Like I love a good dive bar. There's nothing better than a good dive bar, a small band music, not too loud, just loud enough, loud enough. You have a conversation with someone, you know, bunch of random people from all walks of life and just coming there and just having a conversation with a stranger and just finding out about their whole life. That is my favorite thing to experience in this world. Okay. So how does that play out then? So, cause I was going to ask you about that, about how much or how little you like to talk when you're there at the bar ostensibly writing um are you open to being interrupted or is it like once you've got something you're like all right motherfuckers everybody like tunnel vision i gotta get this shit down or i'm in my own headspace um like that i could see that driving me nuts but how does that work for you uh i'm kind of the different way because i probably never finished projects in a timely manner um if someone comes up and talks to me i'm never gonna like turn them away you know, it's a great way to make a good friend, make a conversation. If it's like getting to a point I want to talk about, hey, man, like I was already working something like you mind if I get back to this? Like, oh, OK, cool. And they're like, oh, what are you working on? And you talk to them about that and be like, you know, such and such, such and such, you know, there's always an opportunity to, you know, sell a poetry book. <laughs> well, that's well, yeah, the marketing never stops. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. I, I I had 14 years off from social media and getting back to it. I'm like, God damn. This is a, yeah, I don't know. It's probably says something about my, my age, but anyway, um, so describe, I guess your perfect setting. It sounds like it's the bar. It's the midday thing. It, if there's no interesting characters or is, 
if there's no, um, yeah, if there's, if there's nothing that is externally pushing you into inspiration, where do you draw it from? If, if you're literally like in a vacuum, like, dude, this place is dead. I've been here a million times. I've seen whatever graffiti's on the wall or in the bathroom, the band on stage I've seen before. There's nobody here to talk to. Where do you go then? Where's your inspiration get drawn from? At what point do you turn internally and go, okay, there, I'm, is, do you just go back to old stories or are you just like, yeah, now this just became Starbucks. I got to sit here and I'm just going to work through something. And I, I just externally, I'm not going to get any stimulus from what's around me. Uh, yeah, I'll usually go back. I'll go back to my past. Um, I'll work on the projects I never want to work on. I'll work on uh, finished poems that I didn't really like. I'll go back and edit things. Um, and then sometimes I'll just be like, because I'm I, there's another thing I'm working on about uh, the 2008 recession, like growing up as a boy mm. during that, because I was mm. a boxer at that time. So like me and my friends had started like a boxing league of our own. And like all of our parents were like getting divorced or like losing their jobs. The world was falling apart. And like, we were oblivious to all this. We're just like, Oh, now our family's poor. Times are tough, but we're just going to box every day and just be, you know, 13 year old kids, you know, living a good life, discovering music, discovering skateboarding, you know, all that stuff. And then like in the background of all of it, like the whole world's going to be at like the war was at like a big peak in 2008. And we're just right. seeing like, this is a normality thing. You watch the news. Everything's bad. The world's falling apart. People are dying. And like, we're just like, I don't care. I'm just going to go box and drink shitty beer that we can find. So then I'll go back and I'll work on that project. Yeah, that makes sense. When do you turn to poetry? When does poet, when, when do you go, Hey, I, the, 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 longer form writing isn't happening right now. I, I got to just shrink my aperture and go to, go to poetry. When does that happen? I've never sat down and wanted to write a poem in my life. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so is it, is it a, uh, is it a safety net? Is it, well, at least I got something done. I couldn't get the novel out today. But at least I got this fucking. I've tried to out. stop writing poetry so many times in my life, but it just keeps coming out of me. Like, I'll just be sitting there. I'll be at a bar one time, just like sitting on my phone, like doing whatever, like talking to nobody. And like some line will just come into my head. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And I'll, or I'll like be thinking back on something. I'll be like thinking internally about whatever. And I'll write it down. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. Wait a minute. That's pretty fucking good. I was like, what if I did this? And I like added something to this. And I was like, oh, I could turn this into something else. And it just like two minutes later, I have a poem. I'm like, fuck, shit. I wanted to stop doing it. I'm trying, I need to work on novels. Like, <laughs> I could finish a chapter in a single day and like make it somewhat decent, but then I'll go back and re-edit the fuck out of it because I'm not going to release anything like novel-wise until it's like absolutely perfect. Right. But I'll bang out like 15, 20 poems in a single day. I have like a, almost like 400 like unpublished poems that are just sitting around. Do you, What's your op tempo for going back and actually reviewing, editing, perfecting them before you kick them out? Or is it just like when I'm bored and completely drained, then I'll maybe I'll look at it. Uh, depends on what I'm working on. <laughs> um, Keith is my primary editor uh, from Dead Reckoning, Keith Dow. Uh, and I, he fucking hates me a lot of times because I just send him some completely unedited garbage. And he was like, we've had a, we've had a rule now. They're like, I can't write hammered. So 
And if I do, I have to edit it before I send it to him because he's like, motherfucker, basic grammar rules. I'm like, no, nah, Keith, it'll work out. He goes, no, motherfucker, this is my job for you. Like, stop doing this. Like, you're stressing me the fuck out. I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that. So first off, um, how often do you read? How often do you read books, other people's poetry, stuff like that? Is that a habit? Do you do it occasionally? Does it come in? fits and spurts How's uh, that go? so i'm a big audiobook guy because i i travel mm. like a lot i'm in my van like all the time like driving yeah. somewhere uh so i'll put out an audiobook i just recently read this book uh once there were wolves uh by charlotte mcconaughey uh it's about like wolves getting reintroduced into scotland pretty cool book um so i recently read that and i'll usually crush about an audiobook like once a week that's awesome um, that's it's hard great. for me to sit down and like read because like once I start reading someone else's stuff, I'm like, oh, fuck, I got an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, your motor's revved. So you're yeah. kind of like, yeah, you're not in, in receiving mode a lot. But uh, yeah, I agree. Audiobooks are a fucking lifesaver. And especially if you got the time to listen to them. Um, yeah. How much would you consider yourself a student of writing? Do you take workshops? Have you taken workshops? Do you um, you know, or do you rely on, on Keith really to set left and right limits for you? Like, what what's how do you consider yourself how uh, educated so you i originally was a literature major in college mm-hmm. um i dropped out because i just wanted to i feel like i was wasting my fucking time uh i was like i just need to go out i just need to live life and write whatever i see and then like the rest will work itself out i'm getting a lot better i'm i don't really take a lot of workshops but i do have a lot of software that edits my stuff. I'm do I'm doing a new thing where I pre-edit things before I send them to people. So that's cool. Um, when I was starting to write articles, I didn't understand really how to write articles. So I read, you know, some articles on how to write articles. And I just wrote a couple articles. I wrote like five or 10, sent them to some friends of mine, asked them what they thought. Like I, the person who got me into writing articles was Luke Grime. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's like, hey, man, some good way like to you know make some cash while you're like sitting around, like trying to figure out your book. And I'm like, OK, cool. So I'd send him stuff. And I think the first article I sent him was absolutely fucking garbage because I thought it was like so not punk rock to write articles. <laughs> and, uh, I think the title of the article is like the clickbait article I'll never write. And I was just didn't take it seriously. I was just a fucking cocksucker about it. I was a huge dick. And Luke was like, yeah, man, uh, I guess maybe come back to that one. And I'm like, okay, okay, fair enough. So then I like really thought about it. And I wrote like a serious article. I sat on my serious article for probably six months before I sent it to someone to get published. Wow. Yeah. So you're not writing anything too topical. No, I wrote about uh, an old poet who won the Pulitzer prize for poetry named Yusuf Kamunchi, who is a Vietnam war veteran probably one of the best poets I've ever seen. So I hang out at these old bookstores and I just go and I like buy random poetry books. I don't yeah. buy a lot of modern poetry books. Uh, I don't know. I just don't like it. It's kind of weird, but I found like another, so I try to find like old, like dudes who write poetry. I found this recent one called uh, songs of the seven senses by Don Blanding. Amazing work. Like the book was published in like, uh, I think uh, the 1930s. And I did some research on the guy. It turns out he was a World War One and a World War II veteran. And all his no stuff shit. is about traveling. And like he like his big thing is like House of the Vagabond, where he talks about all the stuff that he has like stored in his home. And 
you know, such and such, like all the trinkets and aspects. It's like a fucking like 10 page poem, but it's beautiful. That's incredible. Wow. That's a really, that's a real luxury to be able to spend your times in bookstores and mine through that shit and then um, internalize it and process it. And, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, lack of a better phrase, learn from it and, and, and yeah. build on their, on their work. That's fucking awesome. That I'm incredibly envious. That's uh, I think when I got back from Afghanistan, um, I was driving through uh, truth or consequences, New Mexico, which is one of my favorite towns. And uh, there was a uh, small used bookstore there just jam packed with shit. And when I went in, I I've always just loved used bookstores. And I was like, why aren't I spending more time here? Why aren't I like diving through this shit more? And I bought like five books and, um, you know, then I came back and I'm like, you know, the wife, the kid, the responsibilities, and I've gotten my way through one and a half of them. So, you know, to actually have the time to dive through that shit and sort through it and, and appreciate it and give it its due course, man, that's fucking awesome. That's, um, well, I mean, that's the ambitious. beautiful thing about poetry. You can crush a poetry book in a single like hour. True, true. Yeah. Scream through it. And I think that's kind of what I love about it. And I think that's why poetry is kind of making a comeback because people are, they don't pay attention a lot very much anymore. So poetry, I mean, poetry books are really hard to kind of sell. I mean, a good poetry book only sells about 200 copies in its lifetime. Well, the average one. So, but like now it's like, we live off uh, hashtags and fucking, you know, quick totally. shirts yeah. and stuff. So poetry is, you know, making a comeback and people are starting to be more into it. And uh, I'm trying to bring poetry back to its heyday in my own sense. Uh, you well, know, and, and make I make poetry cool again, I guess. And well, yeah. And, and I think, I think the veteran community is probably doing more for poetry than the Ivy league at this point. I think yeah. the veteran community is like the fucking, you know, tip of the spear with that stuff now. Um, Let's talk about Soberman's thoughts. So was it really just, hey, you'd compiled enough stuff. You're like, I, I think this can all compile well into a book. Or was it or did you set out to go, yeah, I'm going to write a compilation of poets, of poems and put them together? Um, I don't know. It kind of just so I uh, Dead Reckoning was doing uh, their first joint uh, poetry book called Love and War. And uh, I had met like Leo Jenkins and David Rose at a live poetry reading and like listened to them. And like, you know, they kind of told me about it. And I like, you know, like every other dude who wants to be a writer, like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about writing a book. And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, same old thing that everybody <laughs> right. does. Right. And uh, we got like a big conversation about it. like, oh, just submit your stuff. See what happens. I was like, OK, whatever. So I submitted it. Uh, it took like a couple months. But then like randomly, I was actually at a funeral and I checked my emails like on the way to the car and I got an email from, you know, dead reckoning saying that my stuff had been submitted and like going to be published. And I was like, Holy fuck. What? And I was like, fucking amped. Like that was when like, I was like, all right, maybe, maybe I got something here, you know? And uh, so then like, I kind of thought about it and I started like, I think like the next week I started like working on a book. Cause I was like, all right. I was like, I probably, sh-. I was like, let's see if you could write a book now. Let's see if you get published. Huh? So I started collecting all my poems that I had collected at the time, organizing them, putting in the computer, editing stuff, all this stuff. And then eventually uh, I just kind of had it all done. And I was like, I had wait till it was completely finished because I've read somewhere that like you never send something to a publisher if it's not completely done. So I sent it to, I think I sent like a DM on Instagram to <laughs> dead reckoning. I was like, Hey, so, uh, 
what's the process of like getting how do you get like published and I was like because I have this like book and they're like well do you want to publish with us I was like yeah it's kind of what I was getting at you know <laughs> like and uh they're like well send us over what you got so I sent over what I had and they were like like oh damn this is actually pretty fucking good and then like a week later they called me and like so do you want to publish with us and I was like yeah I really do actually and they're like okay cool and then it took like uh, it, it was a while for editing, like us getting it all together. You know, Tyler created a fucking amazing cover for it. And then it's a great uh, cover. Yeah. Dude, yeah, it crushes. It, so the inside picture on the front cover of uh, Superman's Thought is actually what the picture of the cover was supposed to be. But then Tyler just did his own drawing with it. And I was like, I loved it so much more. And uh, like, there's the Superman's Thought has a bunch of pictures in it. Um, and like, every picture goes with the poem written with that page. So it's like the location and the inspiration of where I got these freaking poems. Um, and then like it all kind of turned out and like my idea behind Superman's thoughts was like tell a chronological story of a dude just dealing with extreme trauma and just like dealing with like just how I dealt with it. Cause uh, it's about like my, uh, when I was like 20 years old, my uh, fiance killed herself. So uh, after that, I kind of just started guard bumming and chasing deployments to kind of deal with it which didn't work out too well in the grand scheme of things. Um, and then I just kind of became like a real alcoholic drinking all the time, dealing with that. Uh, I was extremely heartbroken and uh, I just tried to fill that hole with like every vice and void I could. And then uh, I wrote about it and then I turned it into a poetry book. Um, obviously speak to the degree that you're comfortable speaking about it. But when you say uh, chasing the deployments, all that didn't work out. Do you mean it didn't work out because you started drinking a lot and chasing vices or you just created more problems? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a healthy way to deal with things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a hundred percent. Like, how did you, I mean, let's just talk military stuff for a second. I mean, it's kind of funny because I reenlisted uh, after a lot of traumatic stuff and, and started chasing deployments as well, like uh, under not similar circumstances, but similar emotional um, yeah, trauma is trauma. Like, that's space. why, like, I tell people all the time, like, it doesn't matter who has more severe trauma. Trauma is fucking trauma, man. Right, right. And I, th- but it's interesting um, the way that then being in austere environments and chasing those deployments ends up affecting you. How did you find it for you? Did you find that it made you um, desperate for the life in back stateside, like color, options, the freedom to be able to do what you want? Um, you know, all that stuff in, in kind of its vibrancy, or did you find, no, there's, there's a kind of Spartan part of me that really likes the grind, likes the suck, likes the, the, uh, the dust, you know, likes all that shit. And, and I'm just kind of in that place where I'm in that headspace. And that's what I need right now. I have never been the, I've done a lot of really tough and hard shit, but I'm kind of like a big weak guy. Like I complain all the fucking time. Like I hate the fucking cold. <laughs> I've like done like these crazy fucking rocks and like been through the swamps and I'm just like, this is fucking dumb. Like, why are we doing this? Like, it's cold. I'm like, why are we like, when you say it out loud and you really think about all the stuff you kind of do in the military, like this is fucking stupid. And like, I don't see, this makes no goddamn sense to me, but I really loved uh, being overseas. You know, like I love, there's nothing more. I, I just love being in like a different environment, like seeing like, you know, the different people eating weird food, like the less, the more remote the location I was on deployments, like the happier I was. Cause like I was mm-hmm. cut off from the world and I was with like my best friends at the time and just hanging out with them and like just smoking cigarettes, reading books, you know, drinking beer we stole from somewhere. Like 
it was, it was beautiful. Like it's, it's fucking adventure. That's like the most adventure thing you ever want. And that's the reason I liked it so much. It's like, you can't find that anywhere else in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. And, and then like, yeah, sadly you gotta go like, you know, do the bad part of the military, you know, getting gunfights and do all that other bad shit. That like, you know, I feel differently about that. I did at the time when I was really about it. And like, uh, you know, and then like tragedy happens again and you lose people that, you know, or whatever. And then you have more issues you got to deal with. And you're like, fuck, like, <laughs> but right. Right. Would you trade any of it? Would you have nah, done it differently? I, was doing all, I probably would have got out sooner, I guess. Um, I don't know. Like I was kind of the last of all my friends to get out. Uh, so maybe I always think I maybe should have got out sooner or maybe like chase the dream a little harder for writing, but nah, I'd probably do it all over again. If given the chance, I, I definitely wouldn't stay in for 20 years. Never in my fucking life. But like, Yeah. Yeah. Where, so where do you see yourself, you know, five, 10 years? Do you, do you really want to be staying with novels and doing that? Do you want to be just a prolific writer that you're doing all kinds of mediums, short stories, poems, novels? Do you want to move on to screenplays and, and chase the money like so many other people do? Like, where, what do you want to do? Uh, so I kind of, I already have like my plan. Cause that's one great thing about the military. It made me very organizational and task driven. So I have two poetry books completely done. They're completely done, titled everything. Uh, but I'm not publishing them until I finish my novel because I don't want to get, I don't want to paint myself in the corner and just be a poetry guy. Cause I want to write, I want to write stories. I want, cause like, at the end of the day, you have to look at this in a, in a money aspect. If you want to make a living fucking doing right, this. Right. Right. I'll probably never write screenplays because like, I've been asked like so many times by people um, to write screenplays. I was like, I don't think that's my thing, man. Like maybe who knows, maybe whatever happened. Uh, my end goal is to get this novel out uh, because the poetry book is partnered with the novel. Huh. So the poetry book I have finished is written by the main character of the novel I'm writing. Oh, that's fucking wild. Yeah. Oh, and that was intentional. Like that didn't just end up, being the case that was like i came up with the idea when i was driving in my van and i was like man i really need to write so the book's about uh a dude who gets out the army and lives in his van he's a musician trying to write an album and like he just like travels around the u.s finding odd jobs and like the the toll of being on the road and being constantly on the road like just being on the go not really having any roots like getting out like dealing with the past like in your mind late at night when you're laying in your bed or your van and just like it's cold outside and you don't really want to do anything and you second guess the whole journey that you're on like that, all those big aspects that come into like just chasing your dreams. And then uh, he like writes down everything the whole way and he ends up with like this big poetry book, but then he eventually finishes his novel yeah, or finishes his, <laughs> finishes his album. Right. So. <laughs> I was, I was about to ask how autobiographical that was. Yeah. Like, <laughs> answer. Yeah. Every um, fiction novel has a lot of basis of truth in it. You just have sure. to make things sound better sometimes. Right, right. You got to put the right English on that spin. Um, yeah. What uh, yeah, I had a bunch of questions I wanted to ask, but I, th I think let me start with this. Um, how do you know when your poetry book is done? When a poetry book is done? Now that you've written three, one's been published. What's your What's your criteria? I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question i'm still trying to figure it out i just kind of have like a poetry limit i write like 
kind of longer ones, I guess. Uh, but I just have like a set theme that I'm going for the poetry book. And once that theme's like been complete, like, all right, cool, move on to the next project. Or like, I kind of just have like, I just write poetry poems for like a lot of just all the time. So like once I have like enough of like one type of thing that I really like, because uh, like, so there's that poetry book that is for that book. It's for that mm-hmm. novel. Right. Um, and the title of the dude album he's working on is also going to be the title of the poetry book coming out. Oh, cool. Like, yeah, it's kind of, Man, it's kind that's of, cool. Yeah. It's a really complex art idea I came up with, and I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. It's <laughs> fucking like, great, man. Yeah, that's awesome. In the poetry book, the other one that I finished, it's just about, it's like a completely different from Silverman's thoughts. It's like happy because like I'm finally at a point in my life where I'm like actually not like fucking depressed as shit and suicidal. So I'm like, oh, fuck, this is badass. Like, I love, I actually really enjoy being around this earth. I love life. Like, I love the experiences. Like, I'm doing all the things I always want to do and like, it's awesome, you know? So I guess you just have to find, and you know, you just know, you just know when you finish your book, you write that last poem and like, you sit there and you're like, you know what? I think that's fucking it. And you store it away, you sit on it for a little bit and you go back and you read over it and you're like, yep, that's fucking it. I'm fucking done. And then you move on to the next project. Talk for a second, since you brought it up, talk for a second about how, how your mental health intersects with your writing at what point do you feel that you stopped writing therapeutically um or is that always going to be a part of it um yeah i guess just i guess that's the best way i can put that yeah what point did you feel like yeah that you stopped writing for therapy uh no i mean that's never going to stop for me you know the bad days always will come but it's just the frequency of them Mm -hmm. So I have a dream journal, you know, when I have nightmares, I record them and I write down what happens in them and I just kind of sit on them. And sometimes I'll publish them like in Superman's thoughts. I have a couple of things like dream dream journal log number, whatever the fuck, you know, and uh, there's art in it. But I really those are like when I have a bad time, I'm thinking on stuff from the past or whatever, like bad thing happened to me at one time in my life. I just write it down, you know, because that's for everybody else. Like there's some things I write that are specifically for me, but I want people to know out there, like no matter who they are, veterans, non-veterans, like freaking just some random art student, some random bartender, some mechanic somewhere that like pain is pain. Trauma is trauma. And I want people to understand that like, you're really not alone. Cause that's how I felt like for a long time in my life, I felt like there's, I was like, I'm crazy. Like there's like everybody else seems like they got it figured out. I'm fucking depressed as shit. I hate my life. I was like, I'm just in here, like working on my fucking book and drinking all the time. And then like, then I have people from like South Africa hit me up on Instagram and be like, I really loved your book. Like completely different walk of life for me. Wow. And they're just like, there are people who have no experience in the military at all. And they would be like, I just like, even though like you've lived this life and like, it's kind of crazy, but like, it's so relatable to everybody else. And I was like, I don't know. And I hated my book for so long when it first came out. Really? Oh yeah. Why? I don't know. I put it out there. I thought it was really good. And then I put it out there and I was like, damn, I fucking hate this. Cause it's like so personal in so yeah. many aspects. And like, everybody was like reading it and they were like, Oh, I like it. And I was like, they're lying. There's no way they like this book. <laughs> this book is dumb. This book is stupid. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. So did you think, did you read it and wince at, at any point? Did you go through it and go, Oh Jesus, why did I put that? There's probably like three poems in there that I really like. what so it is funny um again just doing the stalker thing going through your instagram all that stuff 
it's it's interesting in the age in this booming age of veteran poetry you really don't go out of your way to brand yourself as a veteran poet it seems yeah. like you're uh, we talk about why that is what the con- how conscious or unconscious that was I did that 100% consciously because I was like, if I'm going to make it as a writer, I want to do it all in my material, not my background. Mm. It doesn't mean a rat's fuck that I was in the infantry for like almost 10 years. It doesn't mean a thing that I got in gunfights and did like somewhat mediocre bullshit. Like that me has nothing to do with my writing whatsoever. It means nothing. Like what matters in my writing is the material I put out and how relatable it is and how people like it. So if I was to ever label myself as like, you know, that style of writer, I've been painting myself in a circle and I never would reach the audiences that I want to reach because I'm not writing for, it's going to sound really fucked up and like people might massacre me for it, whatever. I didn't write it for the fucking veterans. I wrote it for the everyday fucking, because like my experiences are way outside of the military. Like my, I'm in lining and trying to write for like, the young 20 year old adults who have extreme trauma happening in their young lives, like the lost fucking kids, the artists, the people who know that like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That's who I wrote it for. I just so happened to be in the army at one time in my life. That's the only thing I look at it. Like, and that's how I want to be looked at. Like, like Don Blanding poet, poetry, uh, poet that no one knows about nothing in this book. Does he ever mention about him being in the military? He's just a really good poet. And I'll probably never will write a military book. And even though it was like a decade of my life, almost I was in because I don't want to, it's personal to me. Talk about that. When you say it's personal to you, meaning that you don't think people can relate. You don't necessarily want people to relate, or it's just, you don't, you just are uncomfortable kind of being the avatar of a veteran artist. Like, it's like, Hey, just look at me as an artist. Like, don't look at me as a representation of, all yeah, exactly. military. kind of like uh, that. But also, I feel like every GWAT story has already been written. You know, uh, yeah, it, the story, it's a 20 year old war. There's been like thousands of books arguably published about it. Like you don't need the outlook of me to make you look at that. You're going to get the same stories. You're going to get the stories about going to villages. You're going to get the same stories about coming off a mission. You're going to get the same stories about like taking, enjoying little things. And like, like my outlook's not going to be any more unique. Um, the only slightly unique thing is that like, I was kind of there for the end of the war, like 2019, like when everything, like it was like the last part of kinetic operations for Afghanistan, like now it's 2021. And like that, it's just went to shit real quick. Like there's nothing unique about my experience. And well, I don't know, maybe, but I don't know. It's that those experiences belong to the guys I serve with who were there. And I owe it to them to keep that between us and us to enjoy those moments. And I even told them because I was a, they all knew I was writing at the time. They're like, oh, you're writing a book about, you know, us and the job. And I'm like, nah, man, like, I'm just writing about life. Like, I'm going to keep that between us. Like, this is our lives. Like, I don't want to because, like, God forbid I write it and like a, somebody takes like a character that was based off my friend the wrong way and like hate him. Like, I can't I can never do that to my buddies. Or, so I'm going to keep it to myself. And uh, I'd rather keep it to myself because I don't want to share too much of my own life as it's my life, you know? How much of just the emotional content, though, do you bring out? So without even bringing up no shit there, I was kind of stories, but just to say like, hey, you know, the the um, first gunfight, the uh, first time dealing with, 
you know, combat deaths or, or combat trauma, not even mentioning it, not even getting specific, not even saying anything to do with the military, but just the emotional content itself. Do you ever find that bleeds into your writing anyway, or that your stuff that you write, but it's like, Hey, I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wrap it in camouflage. I'm not going to wrap it in, you know, yeah, you know, in, in the military. Or no, the flag. I mean, 100%. I mean, I, there are poems that are specifically about my times deployed. I have a poem in Superman's thoughts about the last dude I ever killed, you know? And it was a very, you know, it's something that stuck with me, you know? the whole essence the whole thing that went down with it. So I just, it stayed in my brain. I stayed on it for like a year. And then like a year later, I wrote about it because it was just on my mind. I couldn't get it out. There's no dip cans, you know, Velcro, any of that shit in it. And like, it's just something that happened to me. And I felt like I want, I just had to get it out of me. So like there, I will always, I will write about those things, but I'm not going to cover exactly. Yeah. I just said, I'm not going to cover an American flag. Cause like, I wasn't, extremely patriotic i didn't join for god and country i joined for a paycheck and like adventure like and that's it like i've never been that type of dude and i never will portray myself as that dude i'm just a i'm just a writer who so happened to be in the army that's it you know it's funny though because i mean you look back at goddamn how many more world war ii stories do we have and i'm, I'm not saying that to dog on the world war no, on the greatest generation or anything but it but it's like you know there's tons of stories that can come out and I definitely would say, you know, the 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 secret sauce is the individuality and that, yeah, okay, you know, the same, you know, there's a lot of similar op orders. There's a lot of similar takeaways from the GWAT, but the individuals, you know, the more articulate the and more attuned the individual is, I would say, you know, in time, you know, uh, I bet those stories will resonate because there will be something unique and different to say if I had to venture a guess. If there's any story I ever want to hear from the GWAT, it's dudes who are in like pre 9-11 and served the whole fucking thing. Like, cause in my opinion, like there's a dude, he works uh, Jericho Dimon. He's like out there on Instagram, you know, laid back berserker. Like that dude is so fucking has his mind on the right track. If there's any veteran that you should try to be. It's that guy. Like that dude did the whole goddamn thing. And he just has a good head on his shoulders. He works at his own fucking, you know, media consultant company, like writes a little bit, travels, like just lo- all about like being healthy and stuff like that. Like he's the veteran that you should want to be. And like, that's in my opinion, like the greatest generation, the next greatest generation, because like we have dudes who have done like years of combat experience, like years, like doing direct action, like seeing tons of violence and like, they're just like going and live normal lives. Like that's what you should fucking do. Like, and I love that example. And like, I, those dudes should write the stories of the GWAT, not me with like some little deployments here and there doing some fucking things. Like, I'm not that guy. Like I'm going to write about traveling and like going to dive bars and like experiencing life and listening to music. You know, it's funny. You know, I, I can't remember who I was talking about this with, but I, yeah, I'm, I hear what you're saying. I think there's a natural modesty and I'm not trying to, to convert your, your, the way you're thinking about it. I think everybody comes to that honestly, but I do think there's, um, I think I was talking about this Dave Meadows um, when we were talking on the show a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the natural reticence of vets to feel that they, um, to feel that they have something worth saying. Now you don't, you certainly aren't in that boat. You certainly know you have something worth saying and you're doing, you're knocking yourself out to get it out there. But even to talk about GWAT, um, I think one of the things about the military is everybody looks up to somebody. 
It doesn't matter how badass. There's somebody else that you, you talk to anybody and they're like, well, yeah, I'm okay. But that dude was the fucking real dude. And all yeah. of us kind of dish that to the point that at the end of the day, if we all play that game, it's going to be like, there's going to be five guys that we're going to feel comfortable, you know, saying anything about it. Cause we're like, Hey man, you know, like we're all blind men trying to feel this elephant, describe it. You know, it's like, yeah. none of us are going to have the answers, but there is something to be said for just honoring what we even whatever experiences we have, um, man, I don't know. Um, I hope, I hope you, you know what your bandwidth is and what you have to say, but I think, I, I think there's, there's, it's a weird dynamic kind of getting over the natural humility of a military service to go. Yeah. yeah I, I have a fucking right to my own voice. And even though, yes, there's shared experiences here and yes, I'm not trying to say I'm captain America, but this is just what I saw. This is my experience. This is, this is what, how this registered, how this imprinted on me and I'll speak to it. And um, I think sometimes in the military community, we kind of come down on each other because there's a natural kind of resentment of people that stick their heads up above the crowd. So a lot yeah. of times we go, Hey, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to represent anything more than myself, but it's okay exactly. to represent ourselves, you know, and we yeah. got to at a certain point because I, because I, I, you know, this generation and it, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole, I guess here a little bit, but it's interesting no, it's to me. You know, I, with World War II, you know, the greatest generation, all that, how many suicides do they have coming out of that war? You know, a lot. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are. You may know more about it than I do. I haven't looked into it, but I'm like, I did a lot of research. Did on you? That yeah. I, I was curious, you know, you know, and uh, I, the only book, my favorite book about World War II is Helmet from My Pillow by Robert Leckie, because that is the most real version i think that has ever been portrayed of world war ii because it is raw it is gritty you read it and you're like what the fuck why have i never heard stories like this was this unique and like uh, about dudes like killing themselves in the rain like on like oh, some no Pacific island wow. like dudes like losing their mind like just getting demoted like just getting random girls in australia and pregnant and like going like just going out to fight in the pacific and just dying like it's that's probably so and like at the end of the book like he names every single dude in his battalion that was killed and like he writes about like how the atomic bomb being developed was the worst thing for mankind ever to happen. Like it is a deep fucking book. And he wrote it because he went to a Broadway play in 1950 called Pelu or Pelu, however you pronounce it. I'm right, right, right. It. But he wrote it in like he went to a Broadway play with his wife and he's like, they turned the worst day of my life into a Broadway fucking musical. Like, what <laughs> the fuck? Like, <laughs> That's and it's a fucking, fucking joke to these people. And then he's like fucking locks himself in his room. Like, I'll fucking show them. And like starts scribbling out fucking Jesus stuff. Jesus Christ. That's and fucking it's wild. it's a great, phenomenal book. And everybody just wants to talk about Band of Brothers. <laughs> that's interesting, man. Well, that's why. And that's why everybody's got a right to their story. You know, it's like, yeah, you got to. And, and, and at a certain point, the dick measuring has, you know, it has to be replaced with that. the content. That's like the thing I hate the most about the fucking veteran community. It's like, oh, you try to like, you try to open up to some random person and tell them like, oh yeah, like this is where I was at. This is what I was doing. And they're like, oh yeah, well like I didn't have Wi-Fi for three days. Like it's right, 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 all right, fucking right. time. And I'm just like, can we just like, cause I go to the VFW, I'm a proud member of the VFW. And I love nothing more than going to the VFW on a random Thursday night, hanging out with Vietnam vets and just talking shit with these people. And I'm like, all these dudes who like make their money off, like their past veteran service, not once have stepped into a fucking VFW unless it was where a fucking photo op. 
And that's why I probably keep so back from everything because I hate those people that use their accolades and service to make a fucking buck. Yep. And like, don't give a goddamn thing back. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me as to why why you're holding back on it. I, yeah. I that makes sense because I, I I would do the same. Like I, I I get it, and then I I feel that 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 twinge also when when you're like, yeah, this is I don't want to be that guy because you know what the pushback would be like. You know yeah. what? The and I wasn't a good soldier. I was not a good soldier. Like yeah, I got promoted, but like I got demoted twice. Like I was kind of a fucking not great dude. Like I was angry a lot. I fucking drank way too much. I probably hazed some soldiers I shouldn't have hazed. Like I probably did some things that I shouldn't have done. Like I don't want to fucking talk about it. Cause I might, if I told my military story, like people wouldn't believe me one, but like, there's no way you did that. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Don't care. So like, who gives a shit? Like I'd rather yeah. just write books about living in a van and having a good time. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's funny. Cause there is that. I, I do think that to be, uh, this sounds pompous, just to even phrase it like this, but, I can't think of any other way to say it. I think to be an artist, you have to, at some level, rip open the veins in your arm and kind of show who you really are. And there has to be that acknowledgement of like, you know, hey, this is who I am. This is what I did and all that. Because to your point, there have been times where people are like, oh, what? You didn't get an Article 15? What kind of fucking soldier were you? You didn't fucking live. You didn't do the army, right? So it's like, dude, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're either gonna like me or not. I wish I like, didn't get demoted. You, you know, <laughs> I hated. They stopped. They kept paying me an E5 pay for like months, and I was like, "Hey, like I'm demoted." And they're like, "Yeah, whatever. We'll fix it later." And then I got an eight dollar paycheck on the first, and I was like, "God damn it!" <laughs> See, that's what I mean. Like at a certain point, like it's, it's not it's- cool to get in trouble. It's really not. Like anyone who's listening to this, like I promise you, it's not cool to get in trouble. Like be a good person, but like. But that's the thing, right? It's like it's street cred. It's like, oh, hey, you know, I, I did this. I did that. And this is I got the scars to prove it. And sometimes that's misplaced credentialing. That's like, well, that's not necessarily the credentials you want. I think the biggest thing is is the sensitivity. So I'm going to make a, a, a parallel because I'm not saying any of this super articulately. But I know they said about Brando, what made Brando such a great actor was that he was sensitive. They're like, it's not that he had gone through a ton of hardship in his life necessarily yeah. he did later on but you know for for the bulk of his life like he came from an upper middle class home like there wasn't anything bad necessarily that would make you go oh my god what a torture guy no wonder he is who he is on screen but it's that he was so sensitive that even the littlest slight or the littlest suggestion registered with him so when he was acting it didn't take much for him to communicate desperation or uh uh fear or uh lust or anger or enrage, you know, uh, an enraged uh, personality didn't take much because he was, he was just a finely tuned instrument that could pick up any little vibration and take that to a theatrical extreme in a way that an audience would appreciate. I think there's a lot of that that applies to any artist and certainly to a writer where it's like certainly living adds to it. But at the end of the day, it comes down what what you bring to the fight is your own instrument. How finely attuned are you? And not just I'm not saying you, but one. How finely attuned is a person to any circumstances where they can? I remember one of the most powerful short stories I, I ever read, and I consistently forget this woman's name and the title of the story. But everyone will just have to take my word for it. This story exists. But she she wrote um, this short story about learning to drive, and she was a, a New York City resident. 
had lived in the city her whole life, never had to drive. And she was learning to drive an automatic in like the mid nineties, if I remember right. And she was like 45 or 50. And it's just a short story about her driving and it's nothing happens. It's not traumatic. uh, You know, if you're looking at it objectively, it's not, you know, it's things that anyone that served in the military would go, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what's the drama here? Big fucking deal. Man, she minds so much out of just these little moments, these little sensitivities. And I'm like, that's the power of an, of an artist. And what's great for, and that's why I say with anybody that served, man, you've got a fucking, even if you you know, didn't do a combat deployment, even if you, you know, whatever, just by signing that piece of paper, the series of emotional events that you go through that are exceptional, that give you a certain primal understanding of fears, austerity, stress, whatever. There's so much grist for the mill there that you can internalize in so many individual ways. I think, I, I think it's up to the artist now at that point to mine that shit and the external what actually happened objectively isn't as important as internally what you can draw out of yourself and put on paper. Yeah. I agree with that full heartedly. Cause I mean, I feel like you have to be like that. If you're going to be any form of artist, you have to be able to pick up and just like make the tiniest thing feel important. Uh, and I've been told like by people in the past that I hold on to things too hard and I, I'm very sentimental. My house is filled with like little trinkets and little small things that like mean a fucking lot to me. Cause I don't know. I just, I can't let that shit go, you know? And like, there's yeah. like, like some of this, if I was like to go down like line by line or like page by page of my book of like why I wrote it, people would be like, what the fuck you wrote it about that? Like <laughs> I, I once wrote this really good poem and I made it sound like super deep and super interesting because I was like, I had a bet with somebody. I was like, I bet you I could write a really great poem about my dog taking a piss on the ground. And my buddy's like, no way you could do yeah. that. And I was like, bet. Sat on it for a couple of days. And it was like this one beautiful night. Me and my dog were out there just standing in the rain, just like playing around, just like throwing the ball, just having a great night. Like, and then uh, he just took a piss on the ground. I just like thought about it all, and I wrote it down, and I put it on it, <laughs> put it on my story on Instagram. Everybody's like, "Oh, fucking deep, awesome!" I'm like, "That's how I know you guys are idiots." <laughs> I'm not saying they're idiots, but it's like, if if I was to go and like tell people, and I really kind of want to do that one day, I want to like tell everybody the story behind the story of like what yeah. poems are written about. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the story behind the poems are so much better. Like especially some of the ones I've written, there's like. I was like, bro, if you would have known like where I was or what I was doing, like, I mean, I wrote this one poem and I, I mentioned it in the book and about it. It was like, I had ripped my toenail off, like dancing at this like random club in Guatemala. It was like new year's Eve. My buddy had like ditched me to go like, you know, hook up with this girl. And like, I was talking to this one girl and it didn't work out too well. And then like, I got in a fight with this random British dude. And like, I lost my room key and I was just sitting on the step and like the fireworks are all around me in this beautiful Island down in central America and my toenails just bleeding and I'm just depressed as fuck. And I'm just drinking my fucking face off. And I'm just like, fuck, man, there is a loneliness and high moments. And like, that's what I always say. Like you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And it's like, I wish I could like bottle those moments up in my life and share them with the world. Cause like, God, there's such a euphoric feeling coming to a great realization after just having like a wild ass night and just like being so sad at the end of having like such an amazing moment. Like, who am I to be depressed that like I'm on this amazing vacation, like backpacking through Central America and I'm depressed on New Year's Eve because like 
okay, maybe I had it right. I had ripped my hands and my fingers open, but like, whatever, you know, like there's a loneliness in the road. There is a true loneliness on just being and traveling. Cause especially when you do it alone, like you could be with this great group of friends, but at the end of the day, like you kind of miss like sharing it with somebody all. Yeah. Yeah. When you travel, how much do you need to be around other people? How much do you not be around them? How much do you need to actually connect, whether it's because you're traveling with a buddy or you're meeting somebody, but you have that emotional bond, even just briefly. It's hit and miss. Like I love, so like what I usually do is I usually travel alone a lot, especially like in the U S like I'm always on the go by myself, but I need that social interaction. I need to talk to someone. You need that connection. And like during the day, I'll hang out with, I'll meet a group of people. We're all hanging out. We're having great times. We're going to be best friends forever, you know, type stuff. Right, Everybody's experiencing right, right. things. We're on vacation. But then the day, like I'm going to go back to my van. I'm going to sleep in my van by myself. And I'm going to sit there in my thoughts and just write down some things or read a book. Like, so it happens a lot. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people have experienced who live a lot of their life, like on the go. You know, it sucks. The final moments of the night are the loneliness, you know? How much do you procrastinate? Are you a procrastinator? Fuck yeah. <laughs> I don't work on anything unless I absolutely want to. What What is your drug of choice to keep you procrastinating? Is it that you get lost in the algorithm on Instagram? Do you just start Netflix and chilling? What What is it that keeps you from writing as much as you would otherwise do? I just don't feel like getting into the can of worms of like, Oh I, yeah. I, I, I hate writing, you know, like yeah. I fucking rip open and like go back into it. It's like fucking exhausting, man. It really takes a lot out of you. Cause like all my, everything I ever write is based off something that happened to me. So like I wrote one short story that was pretty much about my time in the military, but I, I changed the times, the names and like the war of it all. So I wrote about a dude in Vietnam you know, it's like a 20 page short story. And I like put it all out there and hid it behind Vietnam and different names and mm. stuff like that. And I shared it with a buddy and he really fucking liked it. He goes, God, this is fucking good. And I was like, I spent like, it took me like five days to write it. And I was just fucking exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to write anymore, man. <laughs> so I watch a lot of movies though. I'm a big film guy. I fucking love movies. I love the storytelling. I love everything. I love going to the movies. Like I used to get, when I was living in South Texas, like on the border, like I had this drive-in movie theater. I went to all the time. It was my favorite thing to do. I pile up. I had a pickup truck at the time. I pile up in this old pickup truck, like Toyota Tacoma, like 95 Toyota Tacoma. Mm, I drive out there and I'd sit in the back and I just watch fucking musicals, you know? (laughs) Wow. No shit. That's fucking hilarious. Do you write every day? Yeah. Do you make a point of writing every day or does it just end up happening that way? No, it just happens. Really? I, don't I really don't. So, so there's no set time that you're like, Hey, I got to write first thing in the morning or I got to write before I go to bed. You don't, you don't have it programmed like that. There's no plan here. I'm going to be hundred percent honest with everybody. Like there is no plan to this madness. It just, it's just happening. So what's interesting to me about that answer is how you write your novels that because uh, your answer back then surprised me. And I know I'm jumping back in time a little bit, mm-hmm. but you said, you know, you write the first scene and the last scene and then start filling in everything else. That seems incredibly control freakish, planned, manicured way of writing a novel when that was is not what I would have expected you to say. Yeah. Did you con- like 
what led you to learn that that was the way you needed to write novels or is that, are you still in the trial and error phase and going, Hey, let me see if this works. No. So there is a novel that's completely done by me. It's sitting on my computer and I might publish it like five years from now, but it's a super personal story. That means a lot to me. It's about a dude backpacking Europe and finding his refining. A guy goes to backpack Europe to kill himself and then ends up not doing it to, because he finds his love of traveling. Uh, so I wrote the first chapter because I remember I just wrote the first chapter is like just trying to get something out there. I was like, I need to work on something. Like, what's the most? And I thought back, I'm like, what was the most passionate thing in my whole life that ever like turned it all around for me? And it's me backpacking Europe. So I was like, fuck it, you know, make a create a character, create a background, you know, story. So I wrote the background story, first chapters. You know, that's what they're all about. Like, introduce like background story, yada yada yada. All right, let's dive in. Boom. But I was like, man, I really need to. Just, I was like, I need the end. I was like, what's the ending going to be? Because like, that's the most important part. That's what sticks with you. The beginning and the end of a book is what sticks with you. The ending, the beginning is what pulls you in. The ending is lets you know if it's good or bad. So I knew at that moment that like, I have to make sure these two things are good. And I knew like what the ending was going to be. I just felt it. I, I had it pictured in my mind, mostly because I had lived it a little bit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I sat there and I wrote out the ending. And I remember writing that that ending chapter of that book and it fucking it took me like a day to recover from writing it it fucked me up it like i had to pull out like so many emotions i had not looked at in a long time and i remember like sitting there like finishing it and i was like fuck god damn it and i was like and i didn't do anything i wrote the first and last chapter and i didn't do anything with it for a while and i was like you know what you should might as well just like finish this fucking book like it's fucking a big deal to you you already have all the outline so i outlined the chapters of what they're going to do what they're going to mean. Uh, so I did the outline. I was like, okay, this could fit here. Like, no, let's reorganize this to make it sound better. You know, yada, yada, yada. And then I just started making a novel. Had no fucking plan to do it. And, it, mm. and then like two to three months later, I had a novel done and I was like, fuck. And I was like, well, I really don't want to publish this right now. <laughs> so here it still sits. I'm hidden on my computer and I work in an archaic computer that doesn't even have a webcam. So this is the external webcam plugged up to this. Wow. And, yeah. um, so my biggest fear, it's on a hard drive. So don't worry. It will eventually come out, but uh, not yet. You know, why did you make the choice to actually make it into a fictional novel? Why not do creative nonfiction? Because <sighs> the truth always isn't the best story. I can make a, a fiction novel 90% true, but then like, there's going to be those nights that aren't that fucking entertaining. You know, there's those nights where like you just go and sit on a fucking park bench and eat a bagel. And you're like, fuck, <laughs> I'm sleep back in my bed. And like, you might keep that for the book, but then there's nights that are like fucking absolutely awesome. But like for that part of the story, it doesn't fit. You yeah. need a lonely night that night to fucking make the story flow and like connect with the character and like kind of tell the story. Like, you have like, I don't give a shit what people say. Even nonfiction, there's some fucking lies in there. I'm oh, just yeah. being honest. Well, yeah. it's creative nonfiction, right? I mean, it's it's like you're picking and choosing things, and there's a lot of commentary and other things that are going into it besides just straight narrative. Um, but yeah, no, a hundred percent. Do you find though that you're able to be? Are you one of those writers that is able to be more honest because you're writing fiction? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think a great example, like the greatest example of this, and like this is like the only. The author Dalton Fury, who was uh, Thomas Greer, uh, he did fiction novels and his fiction. And he was like, you know, like the whole backstory of him, you know, he was like this 
you know, Death Before Sky, like wrote a book, Killed Bin Laden. It was really good. But then he made it fiction novels and like his fiction novels were really good. I remember reading this online article. It was like a military website. He was like this dude, like a former SF Ranger Bat dude, like talking about Dalton Fury's fiction novels. And he goes, what's crazy about this is that like, it's fiction. So he can just tell the truth and not get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And, kind of, and, I, and that yeah. stuck with me. And I was like, damn, so I could write a fiction novel and just say some really crazy shit that happened. If I just like, oh, no, I just made it up and then can't get in trouble. So for legal reasons, that was yeah. a joke. That, that was that, that was the Dick Marcinko thing. Do you ever read his books? Yeah. Yeah. Like he did. He's after that first uh, Rogue Warrior, everything else was fiction, you know, um, yeah. that's fucking hilarious. I don't, I don't know how much that does keep you out of trouble if they really want to get you on stuff, but I guess it depends what it is you're trying to get out of. Um, what is the next thing that's going to get released? So you've got all these works pending. What's the next thing people can expect to see from you? So the next thing that people are going to see for me, I'm releasing a poetry album. Spoken. Yeah. What talk talk us through that? What does that mean? Does that mean <laughs> are you gonna have a guy in the back on the bongos like beating a you know, no so behind it? What does that mean? I got really into poetry vinyl records because like I found a random Jack Kerouac vinyl record <laughs> at an antique store, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Took it home, <laughs> listened to it, and I was like this is really fucking cool. So I started researching a little bit on like vinyl poetry records and it was a huge thing for a long time. And then it just dropped off and like, no one does it anymore. So I was like, damn. So I listened to a lot of them. A lot of them, there's either two ways you do it. You have music in the background or you do it live. Charles Bukowski, all these great poets, they have them. So I was like, you know what? I was like thinking, I was like, yo, how much, how much does it fucking cost to make an album? And I was like, kind of looked at it. It was like three grand to get like 300 vinyl records pressed. And I was like, I could save up three grand. So the idea started forming of it all. And I was like, do you want to do music in the background? I love jazz. You know, I love jazz. And uh, I was like, what if I did ban- like banjo music, like Appalachian violin and stuff like that? Go back to my roots of things. So I have uh, all the sound recorded to it. I have my buddy. I can't play the banjo that well. So I have my buddy doing it. And I'm resourcing a violinist from uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, the recording studio is out of the back of a 1953 van, Econoline in Asheville. And uh, that'll probably be out in July. When do you record it or have you? I'm going to do the final recordings in February. Dude, that's a lot of production. Like you really yeah. produce the shit out of you. You put it all I'm together. I'm self-funding the whole goddamn thing. So if it tanks, it tanks, but we'll see how it goes. That's fucking awesome, man. That's great. I love that idea. I love revitalizing that medium. That's fucking great. Did you see our, uh, not to not to ride the coattails of that, but did you see our uh, live poetry reading thing that we had in November? I love that. So I love, I I fucking hate it because my book came out like kind of COVID. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, I haven't done a single live poetry reading in so fucking long. I've been trying to get venues and stuff like that because I love doing live poetry, but I only want to read it like bars and strip clubs and like shit like that. Like, yeah. 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 I like the grungier side of things. I, I write, I write poetry for the blue collar man. And so like, that's kind of why I'm making it. Like, so this album is going to be like on iTunes and everything. Like, it's that's fucking great. Holy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, uh, yeah, uh, I, I won't do any promotion here, but we're going to have a bunch more of those. And um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you guys ever want to do an East Coast poetry reading, I'll gladly come out for anything. Yeah. Uh, that'd be fucking dope. There'd be a lot of cool stuff with that. Um, all right, brother. Listen, you've been beyond generous because we, we've pushed you through an hour and a half uh, on, a, on a Saturday. But so I, I appreciate it. But um, I'm trying to think if there's any final plugs or anything. I, I obviously everybody knows I haven't read um, Soberman's uh, thoughts yet, but. I, I'm looking forward to it. The reviews are outstanding. Um, and, and I'm, so I'm doing this all by guilt by association, but I, I know people will get a kick out of it. And I know that based off everything you fucking live through, uh, there's no way it's going to suck. So I feel very confident in people going out and getting it. Even if you only like three poems out of it, as you said, you do. Um, I think for, you know, it's always different when you write the stuff yourself. Um, dude, this no is a writer blast, likes man. Some shit. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's, there's no way you can, you're looking in the mirror way too hard. Um, but I, I'm, I'm excited to read it and I'm really excited for the live album. I think that's so fucking cool. And dude, I just love all the lines of effort you got pushing out. That's um, I'm excited to see what you churn out there. Um, I will do my obligatory, you know, think about writing plays, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, dude, stay in touch. Let me know how things are going. Yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate the conversation. I love the shit out of this organization, which is why I reached out to y'all guys because I saw it. Like, no, Luke plugged them one night and I was like, yo, there's a fucking veteran organization writing plays in theater. I was like, I fucking love theater. <laughs> <laughs> that shit's badass, man. Well, dude, the second we can bring you up here um, and we can work out a reason to do that, um, I, I would love that. I think that'd be fucking awesome. Let so, me know. Uh, I'm free a lot. I <laughs> <laughs> got you. Well, we'll, tr- we'll, We'll talk about ways that maybe we can uh, get you busier. Who knows? Who knows how things will develop down the road? I'll drink to that, brother. All right, bro. That was the Savage Wonder of William Buck Bolliard. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. And as always, if you want to see what's going on with us, please check out all the latest about Veterans Repertory Theater at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org, vetrep.org. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. You can do that at vetrep.org. Just go to the Now Playing tab, and you will see the option to check out and subscribe to our literary blog. You can always go directly to it at savagewonder.substack.com, but vetrep.org is your one-stop shop to access any and everything related to the Veterans Repertory Theater. You can also subscribe to this podcast, both at savagewonder.podbean.com or at vetrep.org. Again, go to the Now Playing tab, scroll down, you can click right onto the podcast and listen from there. If you're listening to us on iTunes, We would deeply appreciate your five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us or about us, any kind of questions, comments, snide remarks, but if you could attach it to a five-star review, that would be deeply appreciated. As always, please give us a follow. If you're not already following us on Facebook, you can find us at Veterans Repertory Theater. Again, that's at Veterans Repertory Theater, all one word. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory, so I'll spell it here. It's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater is spelled E-R 
not R-E, uh, because we're Americans. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, you can follow us at Vet Rep Theater. A lot easier, right? We didn't have to spell repertory. So at Vet Rep Theater on Twitter or Instagram. And if you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, please go again to vetrep.org, go to the submissions tab, and you will see all the information you need for our playwriting competitions, for our literary blog. You'll have every option available to submit stuff to us. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.